It really is great to be worshipping in person, on site here. Um, I know we've been doing that for a little while, but um, it's easy. Well, it's not easy to forget how many months we were uh, disjointed, and it's great to be together, to hear praises together, and to uh, to see Phil and I um, had many weeks preaching to a camera, and it was okay. Pete was a wonderful. Um, uh, congregation of one uh, with us, and Hermie was often there as well, and, um, and Phil or I were preaching, but it is just even better to have you guys here. So thanks for coming. I'm going to read from uh, the, the Bible. We're, we're looking at one of the letters John wrote. It's called One John, um, and this week, chapter 2, and from verse 3 to 14. It'll be on the screen, and this is the New International Version is a translation if you weren't aware. So John the Apostle, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. May the Lord help us and inspire us, and stir us, and correct us, teach us his ways. Amen. A couple of times in the passage, we heard this phrase, I am writing to you. John, the apostle, the one who outlived all the others, who had a ministry of encouraging. Interestingly, he, he refers to uh, the dear sisters and brothers, the beloved, dear friends, verse 7, which is actually a phrase 
that would be better translated beloved, not simply friends, because we know that some friends are close, what do you call it, uh, like top friends, best friends, BFFs. And then there's others kind of like, uh, maybe they're just more acquaintances, passing friends. Let's do coffee and it never materializes. That's not what John is driving at. He is saying here, beloved. To the churches he writes, this is one of what's called the pastoral letters that, uh, that John's heart is overwhelmed for them and, and eager for them. Though he is separated, possibly in exile or located somewhere in, uh, in a city, writing to the churches, writing to believers that he loves. Beloved, I am writing to you. And uh, he highlights a few, but essentially he's saying, I am writing because you are loved. Dear friends, he speaks in that, um, not just of acquaintance, but in that beloved sisters and brothers, dear friends, beloved ones. He's actually communicating value and that they are precious and that he is rooting for them. At the beginning of the series, when we started, one John Phil was saying how he has sensed that the difference between John the Apostle and Simon Peter, Peter the Apostle, and their calling, and made reference that when Peter was called, he was out fishing. Do you remember that? And when John was called, very, at a very similar time, John was mending nets. Both received the call of Jesus, both responded in the affirmative, yes, we will follow. But made the observation that the two kind of trajectories of these apostles, these founding fathers of of the Christian faith, have had an influence in what we receive from them. The missionary pioneer, Peter, upon whose confession of Christ the church is built. But John, the beloved in John's gospel, he self-referenced him, the the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not in arrogance, but he understood that. He understood that that actually encountering Jesus, being with Jesus, walking with Jesus as the one, as the object of Christ's love, was so influenced and stirred him that he kind of overflows with that in these later times. And the sense of being mended is really important particularly at this time of of isolation and when we've been parted and we have been buffeted by some very strong winds and storms. It's hurt us, not only individually in the fear that is still around because of the pandemic, but it has hurt the body of Christ because we have been fractured. We've not been able to care for one another as we would. We have continued to care, but it has been partial. Mending is so important. Uh, Back when I was 20, uh, I was uh, studying a degree in marine biology in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Tropical coral reefs abounding, uh, beautiful fish in the ocean, warm waters to bask in. If you've ever not been to Northumberland, go up there. uh, You'll discover I'm telling a lie. And uh, Anyway, I was doing my dissertation. And uh, that was in my third year, and uh, we had to go, uh, my particular station was learning about, this, I'll give you the full title, The Temporal and Spatial Dynamics of the Fish Stocks in the River Tyne. <laughs> Phil's not convinced. Anyway, so, uh, 
basically what that meant I had to do over the course of about four or five months, I had to get on the, uh, the research vessel in, uh, in Newcastle, and I had to go and I had to trawl at different stations up the River Tyne. It's really interesting. You saw all the shipyards and sort of down at Tynemouth and all the way up to the Tyne Bridge. It was bitterly cold in the winter, but um, we were well plied with hot tea as we trawled. Trawling is much more fun to catch fish than with a fishing rod. I have to say, it's much more effective. Stick a big net down and you haul out all sorts of goodies. One particular day, I was trawling up the Tyne in my sou'westers and gear. And the, the boat was going along and I was sorting through the last catch and measuring the fish and checking salinity and all those exciting things. And the boat was going along and the, the, the captain was doing his thing and the deckhand was helping out. And all of a sudden, there was this almighty lurch as the boat just stopped dead at going upstream in the River Tyne. And the wire on the trawling apparatus went rigid and taut, and, and, and we all kind of lurched. And, and you could see the captain and the deckhand were a bit like, oh, gosh, what's going on? It wasn't normal. And for about the next half an hour, we were at an impasse. We could not wind the net back in. Nor could we let out because it had kind of affected the hydraulics for the, uh, the, the pulley and the wire. I'm not that engineering, so you can see I'm treading out of my comfort zone here. The mechanism got stuck. There was a lot of scratching of heads, and we were sort of in the middle of the tine and, and all that. And eventually, they said all of us you know, students had to go inside because they were going like, to put the, en the engine at full, full steam ahead and see if they could shift it. What do you think happened? The engines revved, the, uh, the funnel was spewing out all the diesel fumes, and eventually there was an almighty twang, and the wire on the, the mechanism kind of partly sheared, and it, something dislodged, and suddenly part of the fishing gear came up. Without whatever it was that we'd lodged in the tyne, it might have been a car, we never know, or a joy-ridden thing, or we don't actually know what it was. But up came this net without any fish with this huge gaping tear in what otherwise was a very strong net. The next time I had to go sampling on the tyne, do you think we got the mechanism out again and just put it down as it was? Why? broken. Thankfully, I didn't have to mend that trolley net. The captain and the university did a good job of it. It was mended in order to do its purpose again. It was mended because it had got damaged in an extraordinary moment, but things get damaged and broken even, even in the ordinariness of life. I have a friend who's an amazing cook, and he's really creative. But I have to say, he's the worst at looking after his stuff. If, uh, do you know what so we've got? We may be doing like a bit of hedge cutting on a hedge, and uh, it's all very you know, pristine and lovely. But does he put the hedge cutter away afterwards? No, he leaves it out in the rain all night. And, and then comes back to it the next time and gets out ready to start cutting the hedge. And does it work? needs mending because it's seized up. It's been neglected. John, in this letter, is helping the believers to be mended. 
Or another way of saying, these letters, this letter, this content, which can seem a little bit black and white, is really about helping us as sisters and brothers, the beloved, to be well in the Lord, to be whole in the Lord, to understand the, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who we are now. Because once that seeps in, once that takes root, once that permeates and lodges in our spirit and mind, we are in such a different place because we are now not only in Him, but in the truth, in the light, in the gospel. We have moved from death to life. He wants us to know that because there is so much frayed edges. There's so much of the troubles of life, the stuff of life that, that break down or damage or unpick and mean that again and again we need to be mended in the truth. And in these few verses, I want you to remember these phrases about being a believer. John writes to the beloved. He wants us to know and to make our own these phrases. I know him. I live in him, and I am in the light. I know him, I live in him, I am in the light. Can you say that with me? I know him, I live in him, I am in the light. I know him, I am in the light. You may think this is Christianity 101, possibly. But the thing about the basics is that they are the essentials. You go to any of the supermarkets, they've got the essential range, haven't they? The things that every store cupboard needs, the basics. And you can build on that, but if you haven't got your pasta and your tomato sauce and your, your baked beans, where are you? Essentials. I know him. In some senses, these essentials are, are a bit like vital signs. I know him, I live in him, I am in the light. If you end up in medical care, they're really quick to check the vital signs. Blood pressure, pulse, breathing. Do you react when they poke you? You know, that kind of thing. Vital signs. For John, in, in mending the believers, encouraging us in our walk, he says, I want you to know that you are in him. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, that this is one of the essentials uh, of being a follower of Jesus, that we know him. Now, for the time that John was in... Knowledge is one of the things that is skewing the early church, that knowledge of becoming I know lots of things was being kind of celebrated and pushed forward at the expense of actually, and I'll explain what this means, of knowing him. Have you ever met a know-it-all? Or someone actually who knows? The difference between someone who's in marriage preparation and says, I know everything about relationships. My marriage is going to be fine. There's never going to be an argument. And someone who's walked and been married for many years and you know they know what love is about. 
For the, the church that uh, John was tr- seeking to protect and mend, and which we are in danger of sometimes too, is, ju- is I'm, not, I'm not anti-knowledge, I'm not anti-understanding and being uh, seeking after truth, far from it, if you know me at all. But what John is really wanting to say is knowing the truth isn't just heads, but heart. Knowing the truth, as was happening in John's time, was becoming kind of mystical of having these spiritual experiences of of so kind of getting caught up in the spiritual, so to speak, and the ecstatic and the unusual and chasing after moments where they could say, oh, I've got special knowledge and revelation. I'm so blessed. And there is that, you know, in, in Christian faith. Obviously, you know, John was at the transfiguration when Jesus suddenly was shining that his, his appearance changed. He, he was the one at the cross and he was one at the tomb and encountered the resurrected Jesus. And, and so many other times he was there when the miracles happened. Of course, there are these wonderful moments of revelation and, and spiritual highs, mountaintop experiences. But for John, it's also very much of the ordinary, the ongoing. You see, for the church, they were so caught up with this mystical, spiritual, or or the challenges to the church, that they were forgetting that this walking with Jesus, I know him, is actually about the ordinary, the mundane, the everyday, the matter of fact, the Monday and Tuesday and Friday and rainy day and snowy day and weekend. The ordinary. I know him. These vital signs, I know him. Knowing God is evidenced, John writes, by this heartfelt desire to obey him. It's not about, I've had this tick tick, tick box experience and fallen over and and shuddered, and God can do that and does do that. I don't belittle or rubbish that, not in the slightest. But for John, his emphasis is so much on here, you've heard him in, in fairly stark language saying, knowing God is evidenced by this heartfelt desire to obey him. And he's stressing obedience, stressing this way of daily walking him in the ordinary, the mundane, the matter of fact of life, because that's where. Obedience, the rubber hits the road, the vital sign of being a sister and brother, a beloved. Not just the Sunday experience, but the Monday walk. You see, they were starting to think it was all so spiritual, they could ignore actually the struggles of seeking to be holy. Seeking to be Christ-like, seeking to, to, in Paul's language, deny the flesh and let Christ live through us. Paul writes about what it's like to be a child with a parent or the wife of a husband or to relate to your boss at work or the authorities about the struggle with our eyes of what we look at and what we do with the cash in our pocket. That's as spiritual as those ecstatic experiences because it's obeying the Lord in the everyday. Christianity, following Jesus, is worked out in the ordinary and the extraordinary. It says, we know, it's a funny little phrase, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. 
for the grammatarians, it's a perfect tense. That means it's a past event with an ongoing impact in the now. In other words, we have come, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, there comes that moment where, where we know that Jesus is calling us. We come to follow him and then we walk with him daily, onwards. We are walking with him, knowing him, trusting in him in an ongoing sense. And he's, he's driving at this sense that knowledge isn't just um, heads, but experiential. It's not just academic and textbook and abstract and speculative, but is this content, continuing reflex to obey God. I like that, a continuing reflex to obey God. In the stuff of life. We've already seen that he teaches us to deny, it says that we have to deny sin, and the evidence of that is if we do, uh, we're walking with him. If we don't, he says, we're liars. The truth isn't in someone. Now he's saying uh, that the demand of obedience is the same thing. If we're not, truth is absent. Now remember, for truth in John, it's not just knowledge. Jesus, in, uh, he describes in John 14, is the way, the truth, the life. The truth isn't just a series of, of principles, it's Jesus. Same chapter in John 14, that the Holy Spirit is the giver of truth, that the word Jesus is truth. For John, truth is the principle of spiritual integrity that should accompany all who worship, empowered by God's Spirit. In other words, John 4, those who are true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, it's not the, what uh, kind of we can recite and write in an examination, but that encounter with Jesus, that, that reflex to God that says, we have come to know the Lord Jesus, I live in him. And this is where that gets worked out in every aspect of life. In him. He says quite starkly, failure to obey means you're disconnected from God that we keep God's word. That is a sense of more than just a observance, but implies a duration and perseverance to observe diligently, to guard carefully, to, to realize a truth and to protect it. Now, you're probably beginning to think there's, there's a niggling doubt at the back of your mind thinking, gulp. I've disobeyed. I've not been as John He's speaking. Isn't that like a stumbling block? Isn't this meant to be a loving pastoral letter that's encouraging me to, to know that I live in him? What's going on? Am I a liar? Am I walking in darkness? Is the truth not in me? I'll come back to that. Live in him. I know him. Because we've encountered him. Do you start the day and say, good morning, Jesus? It may sound weird. You may want to say that to your partner in nine next to you first. You may not. You may say it in your heart. Good morning, Jesus. Saying, I recognize your presence. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. I live in him. It's really important to grasp again and again. When, when the accuser says, who are you? 
remember I live in him. When you're tempted to doubt and despair, I live in him. How do we know? Because Jesus says it. How do we know? Because we affirm the truth of the apostles who were with him, who learned this themselves, who teach us and inspire us for our good, that I live in him. I live in him. I hope you do too. Because we know him. The logic John is driving at is to know God, I know him, is to live in him. And the outworking of that is to obey. It's the natural thing. To obey is to exhibit Christ-likeness. He says uh, that we must live in him. Uh, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Again, he's quite black and white, isn't he? He's not caveating it. He's not giving footnotes with an exception clause. He's not saying, ah, oh, but in this scenario. He, he then kind of draws it really uh, starkly. He, he puts it in the context, if we're living in him, can we love the unlovely? Can we live with and abide with our sister and brother, or does hate get generated? He says, if it does, that's in darkness. To love is to live in the light. And the hallmark of love, that genuine test, is when faith, when life gets tested. Someone said this, we don't have license to hate, even if it's right. Hate is not just not an outburst, but an attitude that is a habit. Hating that is ongoing. The test, he says, is I know him, I live in him, I abide in him. Therefore, how does that mean when we relate to others? John in his gospel says, if you, the world will know you're, you're my disciples if you love one another. Love that doesn't resolve and turn into hate. Light is in us. You see, John is reminding us that the best apologetic of the gospel, the best words about the gospel that we could share is a church, us, that believes it, lives it, and proclaims it. To believe it, to live it, and proclaim it. I know him, I live in him, I am in the light. Now, I mentioned this, that it seems that the language is a bit harsh. John is all, uh, he's saying, if you don't, you're liars. There's no truth in them. They're in darkness, blinded, strong words. And it does throw up those questions. Am I, Calastas, one of the ungodly? Am I jeopardized? Am I still a follower? I think what John is driving at, and this is where it gets tough culturally, is that we have sometimes reduced love, the driving motive, the driving theme in John. We sometimes just reduce love to that of attraction. When we talk about love, it's do I like them? 
often subtexts. There's an erotic love attached to it. And so when that feeling passes, we look elsewhere. But for John, he's saying love doesn't pass. Love is Jesus. And he is eternal. The same is true when, when love is linked to obedience, which he does. For us, it seems a contradiction that, that love, doesn't it give liberty and freedom and that we can do what we want? Obedience is one of those words that we leave for dog training or for naughty children. Obedience. But it's a really strong evidence of the way that we know him and live in him. You see, for the Christian, and I'm not just making this up, this is what the example of Jesus says, he's entirely loving and entirely obedient to his Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. That Jesus was the most free, alive, abundantly living person that has ever been, and, and it's fantastic to read the gospel stories and say, I can live like him through the power of his Spirit. But that means obedience. It means yielding our life, our motives, our agenda, and saying, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And that is costly. It may limit spontaneity. It, it, it may put boundaries on what I can and can't do, but it is the way of the gospel. It's a lie of our age to say that obedience or following good principles is a denial of freedom. To fail to live in the way that God has led is actually the way of death and chaos and destruction. Whereas actually the way of love leads us to fullness of life. Where we seek to build up each other, to treat others as we would treat each other. To share the gospel which actually leads to life and light. Freedom comes from disciplined obedience. I am in the light. John is wanting this family of faith, beloved. I know him. I live in him. I am in the light. It's also true that he is in us and he knows us and we are the light. But principally, first and foremost, I know him. Do you know him? Not just head, but heart. Have you yielded? Your life, asked him into your life. Do you know him? If you're not sure, take the step today. If you have a shadow of a doubt, if you think, really, am I going to be welcomed? Does he kind of draw back and say, well, you're not quite one of the beloved? Why are you uncertain? If there's any of that grayness in your faith, if there's any of that uncertainty, I urge you, to come to the scriptures, to pray and ask the Father to let you know that you are loved. To trust in the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Or at least ask one of the leaders or people around you to say, how can I know this? Not just here, but here. If you think you're going to be rejected by the Father, you don't know him. If you think that Jesus is going to turn his back on you, you've not come to know his love. And if you have, rejoice in that. I know him. The creator of the world, the savior is all. 
that I live in him. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I live in him. Don't depart. And that I am in the light. Let that light shine through as you walk with him. Let's pray together.